Ephesians 6 is our scripture. We have looked at this passage several times. I won't belabor the point, but verse 16 is where I want to begin the reading this morning. Ephesians 6, verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming areas of the evil one. And our scripture this morning, the first part of verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. I'm so glad Evan made mention of the fact that last Sunday was Easter Sunday. I'm always curious as to what the Sunday after Easter is going to not just look like, but what our experience would be like in church. I don't know of a greater, more exciting story to tell than what we tell on Easter Sunday. But the fact is that every day we live in the truth that Jesus is alive. That he lives in and through us and that we are constantly moving toward that direction of where we will stand in his full glorious presence in heaven. Until that time gets there, we struggle. That's the word that we focused on in Ephesians 6 before. The, the life that we're called to live. There is no blessed life greater than the Christian life. But we know that we encounter pit holes, potholes along the way. We, 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 we encounter those times that we are tripped up and we struggle to be victorious. And that's what our scripture is focused on here in Ephesians 6. As a matter of fact, I don't know that I've mentioned to you that the book of Ephesians is equated often with the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And the book of Joshua, you remember, tells us the stories of how God led the Israelites into the promised land and they defeated the enemy. Well, Ephesians tells us how to live a victorious Christian life. And as Paul is bringing the letter to a close, he reminds us about all of these wonderful resources that we have that he describes as the armor of God. And don't forget, he's in a prison cell. He's looking at a Roman soldier who's possibly wearing a lot of this armor. And so he's making the analogy from the Roman soldier to us. We've talked about the belt of truth. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We've talked about the sandals of peace. We've looked at the shield of faith. This morning we come to what he calls the helmet of salvation. Now, when you think about a helmet, I don't know what you think about, but for me personally, I think about athletics, and I think about the number of athletes who are required to wear some kind of headgear when they go out on the field. I think about football players. I think about Baseball players, when they go to bat, they put a helmet on. If we stay true to the analogy that Paul talks about here, not just the idea of conflict in a war zone, but he says that we wrestle. We wrestle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against those spiritual forces at work against us. Well, a wrestler, you think, wears 
headgear. And if you think about how helmets have evolved over the years, we, we certainly think about those ancient helmets that football players used to wear. It was nothing more than a piece of thick leather that they put over their heads. And they had these flaps that came down over their ears and maybe a chin strap underneath. Well, that leather piece was probably similar to what the Roman soldier was wearing. Now, they evolved over time, just like helmets have done so today. They would, they would sew in these pieces of metal that would come and they would protect them, uh, not just the cranium, but also their neck as they would lower it down to connect with the breastplate. It was attached somehow to the breastplate. You see, uh, a lot of soldiers fought on foot. And as they were in hand-to-hand -hand combat, that was all right, but they feared cavalry because members of the cavalry wore, rode horses and as they came into battle on horses they had these long swords that they would use and as they could ride with the speed of a horse they could oftentimes behead a soldier that was on foot and so these metal pieces sewn into the leather as it came down to connect not just their head but their necks as well it, it would somehow sometimes protect them from the enemy that approached them on horses. Well, what does a helmet protect? Obviously, we say the head, right? Well, what's in the head? The brain. Brain is like that central computer system that operates our entire body. Our brain functions with the heart to give us life. And as Paul is describing the pieces of the armor, he says, I want to make sure that you remember that you are wearing a helmet. A helmet to protect the mind. Is that important? Obviously it is. Paul says in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Philippians 2, he says, Let this mind be in yourselves, which was first in Christ Jesus. The mind is an important part of the spiritual walk with Jesus. Well, what does the mind do for us? It helps us to remember things, doesn't it? It brings things into focus for us as the brain communicates with the eyes and the nervous system. The, the, the mind helps to alert us to our environment and the things around us. The mind is essential to life. And it's for that reason that I think that Paul attaches this idea of the helmet being a helmet of salvation. You see, we, we look at these little words that are attached to each piece of the armor. We talked about truth. We talked about uh, righteousness, we talked about the gospel of peace, we've talked about uh, all these other things, but faith, th these other things are important, yes. But is there anything more important than us remembering that we are saved? That we are remembering that we are sons and daughters of God Himself. I have a friend uh, who, every time he ate a meal, he would eat dessert first. You know anybody like that? I had the privilege of eating with him several times, and 
I would watch him. Uh, we were in revival together. It's a monster of music, by the way. And so, uh, you know, I just I, I observe human behavior in life. And every time we'd go in a home where they were hosting us for the revival, he would kind of survey the desserts first. And after the blessing, everybody moves over to serve their plate. He'd go to the dessert table. Now, he would usually be the first one there. And, so he'd, and then he would eat a good portion of his dessert before he would eat his meal. So as I was getting to know him a little bit, I, I asked him about that. I said, is, is that your common practice? Do you do that a lot? He said, as often as I can. Whenever I know that dessert is being served, he said, I eat dessert first before I eat my meal. I said, why? He said, well, it's because... If I ever have to leave before I finish eating my meal, I've at least had a little bit of the best part. I said, well, I want to ask you a question. I said, how many times have you ever had to leave before you finished eating your meal? He said, never. It's always worked. <laughs> well, here's the deal. If you would agree with me, sometimes that dessert really is the best part, and we look forward to that. A lot of times we just consume the meal so we can get on with dessert. I want to serve dessert to you this morning. I want, I want to spoon feed you a little bit because I want to remind you of just how special this relationship is that we have with God and how being mindful of this relates to our spiritual conflict. When you and I are in the middle of a battle, when the devil is attacking us and he, he's, he's, he's causing us to waver a little bit in our, in our faith and in our understanding and our, in our belief of what God is doing with us in our lives, it's so important that we come back to this essential truth that we belong to him and that we are his sons and his daughters, and he has saved us through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. I got six points for you this morning, but they're going to be really quick, okay? So I, I know somewhere along the way, somebody's going to show me in a book that it's, it's against the law to have a six-point sermon. I, I know that, so I, I'm going to ask for forgiveness a little bit, but here's, here's six things, three and three. It's three together. Three stages of salvation, three dimensions of salvation. And it's very simple. The three stages of salvation we might call the three tenses, past, present, and future. Think about it this way. If you're a Christian, you have been saved. There was a definite point in time in your life where you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and to save you. I hope that you've had that experience. I've told you my experience. When I was nine years old, Bruce, Mississippi, it was during a, during a crusade where churches all across our little town came together and we worshiped and the, the evangelist was E.J. Daniels. It was then and there that I made my commitment to Jesus Christ as a nine-year-old boy. I, I want to ask you to go back in your mind this morning to reconnect with your experience when you ask Christ to be your Savior. And the beauty of this is that if you've not done that, you can do it this morning. And so I want to make sure you understand that if, if you can't mentally go back to that time. You say, well, I don't remember the day. That's all right. You say, I don't remember the month. I don't remember the year. That's all right. 
But I have always met people who said, you know, even though I can't remember exactly when, I am confident. I remember there was a time when I asked Jesus Christ into my life. And if you can't do that, do it now. Ask him to be your savior. Doesn't matter how old you are. If you are convinced that you are responsible for your own actions... And that's what it was for me as a nine-year-old boy. I'd not committed any public grave sin that, you know, caused me to recognize, oh, I'm a, but I knew I, I lied. I knew I'd been disobedient to my mother. And disobedience to our parents is a sin against God, whether we realize that or not. And so when I knew that I was responsible for my own actions, I knew I was responsible for my life. And I had the opportunity to ask Christ to forgive me of my sins, past, present, and future, but I, I asked him to forgive me of my sins and to come in to, and to make my life the life that he wanted it to be. So we have been saved. We are saved in the past, but we are also saved in the present. And that's a part of the not conforming to the world, but letting Christ transform us by the renewing of your minds. Uh, David Jeremiah was on the television this morning. Angie had him on. And so he started with this scripture and he, he, he gave a great illustration. He said, you know, conformity works from the outside in. Transformation works from the inside out. Not just we have been saved, but we are being saved right now at this moment. Every single day that we live on this earth as Christians, it's the opportunity for God to transform us, to protect us from conformity, but also to cause us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And that happens as we think about who we are and meditate on who we are and how our lives can be obedient to him. There's a story told about Mark Twain, and I have no idea if it's true or not. As a matter of fact, it's kind of counterintuitive to who I believe Mark Twain really was. I didn't know him personally, of course, but you read a lot about Mark Twain and you, you see that he sort of made fun of the church and Christians and he would say things that, you know, caused us to believe that he was not a believer. But on this occasion, he was on a speaking circuit and he would just go around at different places and he would deliver these speeches. And, and on one occasion, he was to speak with another person, another man, and as they got engaged in conversation about religion and the church and faith, the other man said this, you know, I think someday I'll become a Christian, as if he could choose to do that anytime that he wanted to, and he said, and when I become a Christian, he said, I am going to travel to Israel, and I want to climb to Mount Sinai, and there I want to recite the Ten Commandments. That's what the man said. And allegedly, Mark Twain looked at him and said, well, I tell you what, instead of you waiting until that day when you become a Christian and going to Israel and climbing to Mount Sinai and reciting the Ten Commandments, he said, why don't you choose to go home and live the Ten Commandments? That was good counsel, wasn't it? And that's good advice for you and me. And the challenge that we have as we are being saved is trying to figure out how we can live obediently to God. And we do it through that love relationship we have with Christ. I'm coming to that. Hold on to that thought. So it's not just that we have been saved, but we are being saved. And there is coming a day out there in the future when we shall 
be saved. Somebody said, well, this is crazy. I, it's like you're, you're splitting up our, our salvation experience. I thought once saved, you're always saved. We are. But it's the idea that we can dissect the relationship and the progress of that relationship with Christ from a definite point in time in the past, bring it to the current state in which we find ourselves trying to live obediently to Him now, and know that there is coming a day out there where we will be fully obedient to Him, and that's when we get to heaven. Revelation 22, verse 3, John, looking toward that day, describing for us heaven itself, says... I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. And as he goes on to describe everything in Revelation there, he comes to the last chapter of the Bible and he says, And I saw a river flowing with crystal clear water coming out of the throne of God. And there on one side was a tree of life bearing every kind of fruit. And then this is what he says, And there was no longer any curse. Well, I tell you what, that's shouting ground. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about at that point we are no longer tempted to sin. If God himself revealed his physical, tangible presence here this morning, I think we would be blown away. I think we would be consumed. We would be like Simon Peter when he realized who Jesus truly was. The Bible says that Simon Peter just just fell back on his knees and said, you need to depart from me for I am a sinful man. I think that's how we would feel if we truly experienced the full presence of God. But let me tell you something, folks. There's coming a day out there in the future when whether we are transported to heaven through the rapture or whether we live through that resurrection experience and our souls are reunited with our bodies and we stand in the presence of God we will stand fully, wholly, completely forgiven. And we will be enveloped and embraced by the presence of God. That is the full circle relationship of salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved justified, sanctified, glorified. It's the three tenses of salvation. And this is important for us to remember as we struggle in that spiritual conflict. But quickly, let me remind you, there are three dimensions, three levels in which we live in this experience. The first is emotional. Emotional. Some of you will relate to this. Others of you will get there. You remember what it was like when you fell in love? Do, do you remember just, do y'all know who Adrian Rogers was? Pastor in Bellevue? Okay. Well, I quote him on this, and I say that to let you know that he said it. So it sort of gives some credibility and frames the reference. Dr. Rogers said, he, was quoting, he, he quoted the verse, was preaching on the verse where Jesus says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And he said, when I was in college, I almost became a girl. Hello? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I thought that would be humorous for some reason. I apologize. <laughs> Do you remember what it was like when you fell in love and every thought was connected to that relationship? 
You just couldn't get your mind on anything else and you just, you were swooned by that. You just, oh, it's, you, 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 every, you were consumed with the idea of spending the rest of your life with that individual. I know people who were, who've been married 50 years and still feel that way about their spouse. And I want them to feel that way about their spouse. But you and I also know that sometimes marriage is difficult, isn't it? I mean, you get married, and, and sure, there's a honeymoon that you live through, but over time, time has a way of just eroding that emo emotional excitement and enthusiasm, and the ideal can become an ordeal until sometimes people say, this is no deal, <laughs> And they separate, right? In the Christian life, I believe that when we come to Christ and we ask Him to save us, regardless of what age we have, are or were when we ask Christ to save us, we go through that emotional experience of, I cannot get enough of Jesus. I want to learn more about Him. I want to serve Him. I want to pray. I want to read my Bible. I want to share Him. And we're so enthusiastic about it. But over time, if you're honest the relationship loses a sense of its newness and its attractiveness. It, it, it doesn't mean that we're not drawn to Him. It doesn't mean that we're not committed to Him. It's just like marriage. We discovered that there is a maintenance to the relationship. And so the relationship with Christ moves from that emotional dimension to an intellectual dimension. Now, Jesus described the intellectual dimension of salvation this way. Listen to what he said. What manner of man builds a house without first counting the cost? Who builds a house? Who says to their wife, I don't think many of us could ever do this, say to our wives, honey, money is no object. I've got all the money you need. Just go build a house that you want. No, typically what we do is we sit down and we draw the plans. We estimate the cost, right? Then what do you do? You tear up those plans and you draw more smaller plans and you build a house. I'm, I'm being a little humorous there. But we estimate the cost. What do you do when you get married? I hope that you did this. I hope you encourage your children to do this, your grandchildren. Before they get married, sit down with that prospective soulmate and count the cost. Put a pencil to it and say, how are we going to survive? There's rent. There's a house payment. There's a mortgage. There are bills to pay, utilities. There are groceries we have to buy. Then come along children. Throw that out the window. It's going to cost you 10 times more what you imagine. When children come along, right? So we have to estimate the cost of what it's going to be. When you estimate the cost with Jesus, listen carefully now, it is this relationship that we have with Him where He says, this is what it's going to cost you, but I'm going to give you what you need. There is never, ever, ever an experience that we walk through where Jesus says, this is what it's going to cost for you to be obedient to me, but I'm going to pay the price. He's done it already on the cross, but what He does in giving us what we need to be obedient through that experience, He gives us courage, He gives us strength, He gives us perspective, He gives us an understanding, He gives us other relationships who come along with us and walk with us through that experience. Jesus provides.